This is the word of our God. Hear it now with thankfulness and joy. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men may be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. The older women likewise, that they may be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, 
to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, so that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded, in all things showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who believe in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. When I send Artemis to you, or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Send Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journeys with haste, that they may lack nothing. 
And let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. I want you to imagine being in that first century, that first generation of New Testament believers. I think from our perspective, it it can be easy to think of how great they had it. They had apostles. I want you to think, though, about what it must have felt like then when that letter came. Peter and Paul have died for the gospel. You know that letter came. It came in the late 60s from Rome to all the churches. I'm not saying I know for sure that there was a physical letter, but the word came. Paul is dead. Peter is dead. Forty years later, another word came from Ephesus. John, the beloved, the elder, is dead. How do you think the church felt at that moment? I don't know if we can really appreciate how that felt. Because I've never had the privilege of thinking, well, half the elders are saying this and half the elders are saying that. Dear Paul, what do we do? But you know, church has had that privilege for a while. That's why we have First and Second Corinthians, isn't it? It's clear that someone in the church, maybe it wasn't the pastor. Maybe it wasn't even an elder. Maybe it, maybe it was some older woman in the church who was at home praying, just really distressed by the division that she saw in the church. Paul, will you just set them straight? And he did. What does the church do when there's no apostles left? When the apostles die... And churches that were established under the ministry of an apostle that had an occasional drop-in. Oh, Peter's here this week. I guess I'm not preaching. Peter, get up here. Uh, Who were able to write letters to the apostles and receive responses from them. Many of which we don't have. That they weren't the inspired word of God. They were just letters from the apostles to local congregations. And they haven't been included in the scriptures accordingly because they weren't from the first day seen as the word of God. These letters were included in the scriptures because from day one the church understood this is unique. This is the word of God. But the apostles wrote a lot of other letters too. And then one day they were gone. How, How does the church continue I suspect some thought it's just a matter of time. 
Peter and Paul both prepared for that. Peter's very straightforward about that. Second Peter, chapter 1. I'm about to die. And before I die, I want to make sure you have certain things down right. That's, that's Peter's letter to the church. Titus is Paul's equivalent letter. Titus and 2 Timothy. We, we don't have proof of when exactly the book was written, but it, it's almost certainly written within five years of Paul's martyrdom. Maybe as few as two years from Paul's martyrdom. And the only, the only thing that puts 2 Timothy later is some of the personal comments that he makes to Titus here, writing about one winter, and he'll write to Timothy and talk about Titus being in Dalmatia later. So 2 Timothy and Titus, they're Paul. They're Paul getting ready to not be around anymore. Preparing the church to be churches without an apostle. This letter was probably written two to five years before Paul's death. We, we don't have an exact inspired biography of Paul's later life. We have an inspired biography of the middle of Paul's life by Luke in the book of Acts. And Acts ends with Paul under house arrest in Rome. And he was under house arrest for two years, says Luke. He doesn't tell us what happened at the end of two years. And, and maybe like myself for many years, you read that and you think at the end of two years he died. They killed him. Uh, but church history suggests that actually isn't what happened. Church history has suggested from very early days, uh, some men who even were trained by apostles seem to speak as if Paul was set free after two years and continued doing his thing. He did more missions. Probably during that time, he went to Spain, which in Romans, he tells us, Romans 15, 24, years earlier, he said, for a long time I've wanted to go to Spain. Doesn't make it in the book of Acts. But church, church history tells us, suggests, that he made it to Spain. And one of the early church fathers, as he wrote on this, suggested, it's Jerome, suggests that Paul reached Spain by boat by way of the sea. And perhaps by way of the sea included a missions trip to Crete. We don't know that, but it's very possible. Or it's possible, as some suggest, that he went to Crete with Titus, and then he went up to Macedonia, and that's where he wrote Titus, and then after that he'll go, after the winter when he visits with Titus, he'll go and go to Spain. And after that, he goes back to Rome and is martyred. So Titus is a very late statement from Paul, and it's written so that the church might know how to approach being the church without an apostle. That makes it very relevant for us, doesn't it? We are a congregation without an apostle. And we have to serve God and live here without an apostle. So we look together this summer at the letter to Titus. 
before we jump in to look at specific sections, I want us to look at the whole thing today. Because I think there are four unspoken assumptions that Paul has. And as he gives his many beautiful gospel declarations, his many clear directions for church life and structure, as all these things are are said in the book, we're only going to accept them if we understand his assumptions, his unspoken presuppositions. And there there are four things I want to draw your attention to this morning that are assumed in this letter. The first is that there is a right approach to church. If you're a note taker, you can even put church in quotes if you want. So popular in our day to talk about be the church. And if you use the phrase church non-derogatorily, it's often in a very vague uh, life concept. If we like the church in America, we like the idea of the organic church. And that's good. Church as organic. We are a body of Christ, aren't we? We are knit together. We are grafted into the tree. That's all organic, isn't it? But the New Testament has just as much to say about organism, and that's not popular. And, and in our culture, to talk about an organism of the church, or organization, I should say, of the church, and to say that there's right organization and wrong organization. To say that there's a right way to do the church and therefore there's a wrong way to do the church is is not popular. The, The only right way to do the church in America is sincerely. And as long as you're doing it sincerely, I don't have the right to criticize. You've never seen a church as sincere as our church. You can't say anything bad about it. But Paul assumes in this letter that he, he can, and what's more, he commands Timothy, I'm sorry, Titus, he also commands Timothy, he commands Titus in this letter to say something about it. Not only does Paul assume he has the right to say differently, but he commands Titus that he must say something different. And he commands Titus to train elders who will say something different. And therefore, I have been commanded in my ordination to say something different. And Bill has been required to say something different. And that's not, that's not always nice. And therefore, it's not liked. But it's an assumption of the letter to Titus. How do, we, how do we see that? I think we, we can see it about doctrine, that sincerity isn't enough with doctrine. We can see a key verse right in the opening where he talks about the acknowledgement of the truth that accords with godliness. You see the assumption that makes? 
You can't call your truth godliness your truth if it doesn't match with the truth. Even if you're sincere. But it also has to do with the organization. And the key verse for that is found in verse 5. Paul says to Titus, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. Or as I prefer to translate that. And this is, when I say prefer, I think it's, an, it is an appropriate translation. It's literal, just like this is. But you could translate verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set the things in order that are lacking, even appointing elders. Do you, do you catch the slight nuance that might put in there? It's not set in order the things that are lacking. Oh, by the way, if you have time before winter when you come to see me, appoint elders. William Hendrickson actually nuances it like this in his translation. This is not as literal, but I think you'll see, you'll see where my literal translation influenced him. He translates this, set in order the things that are needed, namely, appoint elders in every city. Paul is assuming that there is a right way to do church or you couldn't set it in order. Who's Titus to come in and say this is the right order if sincerity is the only gauge of right or wrong? No, there's a right order. There's an apostolic order to what the church is to look like. And and Titus is to establish that. Now, it would be infinitely easier for us if the Apostle Paul had chosen to attach to this letter the apostolic book of church order. Because then we wouldn't have had to put so much work into our bylaws as a church. That's what our bylaws are. They're they're our book of church order. Uh, denominations often have a book of church order. As a pastor, I have one that has uh, a lot more detail than our bylaws. You, you know, what, what is an elder? What is a deacon? And, and how do you ordain them? We don't have the ordained part in our bylaws. You know, well, which is right? Are our bylaws right or is my book of church? I got them sitting next to each other on my shelf. If Paul had just attached a book of church order... We all could have just accepted that one. So as we study Titus, there there are things that are hard. Figuring out what the right order is. But there are things that are not hard. The right order of the church includes, and for Titus, must begin with establishing biblical elders. Now, you can have elders and things are not in right order. We've seen that in many churches in church history, haven't we? 
But you apparently, from Paul here, can't have things in right order without having an established eldership. Now, some churches use the term deacon instead of elder, right? Some of you have been in churches with that. But the deacon was functionally doing the elder job. And so there was a certain level of being in right order. But you you have to have some biblical leadership. Why? Why is this so important? Well, I think among other things, it's not just that it's a church without an apostle. But pastors can come and go. Where's the stability? We even see this with Titus, who's more than an apostle, uh, more, less than an apostle, more than a pastor. He's a pastor who's an apostolic delegate to all the churches on Crete. We'll come back to the churches on Crete in this series, but he has authority over multiple congregations. But by winter, Paul wants him out of there. There needs to be a stable leadership when he leaves or the church won't be in good order. The church needs leadership. The right order of the church requires sound doctrine. Who's going to teach it? The right order of the church needs examples of what right doctrine lived means. Who are the people going to look at? The right order of the church requires discipline, biblical discipline, rebukes, correction, maybe excommunication. And who's going to do that? Titus. Begin this work of setting the church in order by establishing elders. But all of this assumes some form of right organization. Some form of right order to how things are done. And that right order, by the way, goes, goes in many directions. Right order of how we worship. Right order of how we serve the community. But all of it requires some form of established leadership in the congregation. And Titus begins there. None of that's popular today. But Paul assumes a right approach to church. Secondly, secondly, Paul assumes that the church is not immune to cultural captivity. Why is it? Maybe all of you were fine with my first point. Maybe some of you weren't. I don't know. But, but, but if I preached... If I preached to a hundred like-minded believers like us, there would be some that would still struggle in the modern church, I think, with my first point. In some way. Why do we struggle with that? It, it It gets to Paul's second assumption. That we, the church, are not immune to cultural captivity. You don't have the epistle to Titus without that assumption. 
But you do have a very clear key verse. Chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, we read, One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. It's a true testimony. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. Maybe some of you think that's Paul being a little snarky. Taking a cheap shot at a another culture. Maybe some of you, like, like I know I have for many years of my life, think that verse is almost irrelevant to the book as a whole. It's just kind of an aside. But it's not. Those two verses govern our understanding of chapter 2 of Titus. And whether we see that or not is going to affect how much we examine ourselves properly when we get to chapter 2 of Titus. This false teacher, we'll spend a whole week on these two verses, but this false teacher said, all Cretans, all of them, we're the church. But all of them Cretans are liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. Praise God, I'm not like that. And Paul says, well, part of, part of what you said was true. Therefore, Titus, rebuke them sharply. Rebuke whom? The Cretans? Well, the gospel does that. But that's not the context. The context is rebuking the false teachers, including the guy that said that. And the households in the church that are being led astray by false doctrine, rebuke them sharply. Paul's assuming that what can be said of the lazy Cretan culture, the bestial Cretan culture, the gluttonous Cretan culture, is something that could infect the church. Therefore, instruct the older men to be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith and love and patience. Why? Why? Why does Titus need to tell the older Christian men to do that on Crete? Because they were drunk, irreverent, intemperate, feeble in faith or apathetic, lazy in love. Lazy and impatient, like their culture. And the older women, likewise. Why? Because they weren't like their culture. Well, that's Creed. We're not Creed. So we can move on from this point. Aren't you so thankful that we're not liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons in America?
Paul's assumption holds true, doesn't it? The church is not immune to cultural captivity, whatever your culture. For one reason. Because the culture that the church is not immune to is the fallen culture. The culture of our father Adam. Good news. Just as the problem of cultural captivity is still relevant to the church today, so is Paul's third assumption. Paul assumes that there's a right, there's a right approach to the church. He assumes that the church is not immune to cultural captivity. But third, he assumes that the solution is the gospel. That's the assumption of the letter, isn't it? This is how it is. Here's the gospel. You ever notice that Titus contained... Did you notice while we read it this morning? That some of the most quoted gospel statements... Some of the most intricate yet beautifully stated gospel words... In Paul's epistles... Are in this tiny little letter... I went to write down key verses and I had half the letter written out. But, but, but I'll just give you, I'll give you a couple from each of these three chapters. Although I know that Paul didn't put chapter headings. But, but we'll just scatter a couple from this. That the solution, assumed solution to cultural captivity is the gospel. Chapter 1, 2, and 3. He writes, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, Cretans are liars. God cannot lie. And he, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God, our Savior. You liars. God cannot lie. What did he promise? What did he promise? Eternal life. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. Especially notice with that one what it follows. Grammar matters. Trish is here, but my other teachers aren't in the room this morning. But uh, grammar does matter. It matters with Paul a lot. He's a very meticulous academic man. So look at what precedes the 4 of verse 11. It's the sins. It's the failure of older men and younger men. Older women 
and younger women. Teach them not to be like the Cretans. For, for what? The gospel. It's the solution. He doesn't say, for, if you try harder, you've got this. Maybe. He says, for, the grace of God brings salvation. Even to Cretans. Brings it to all men. Even to Cretans. And Americans. And others. 3 verse 4. But when the kindness. Remember Cretans are evil beasts. They don't tend to be nice. But God. When the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Well, I've skipped half of it, haven't I? But Paul assumes that the solution to cultural captivity is the gospel. It's not coming up with some new method to escape cultural captivity. It's not evolving to fit in with cultural captivity. It's the gospel. This is what Titus and those elders he appoints are to bring to play in setting the church right. Sound doctrine of the gospel. This is important. It's important. Consider how the three assumptions we've seen already fit together. The gospel and biblical church leadership and biblical church order are not antithetical. Paul assumes both. Paul assumes that the church, which has the gospel, will also be set right and organized. Sadly, we've seen churches with order and leaders without the gospel. And so we assume the two things can't go together. And that, of course, does set an extra level of pressure on we who hold office in this church to make sure that what we are doing is gospel-flavored, gospel-full, That's hard. But Paul says it's not antithetical. The two things ought to go hand in hand. We might have to be taught how to maintain that. But Titus assumes they ought to go hand in hand. But while the gospel 
and leadership and organization in the church go hand in hand, the gospel and culture do not go hand in hand. Which is going to present us in life with attention. Because we live in the world. But will we live of it? And if we don't live of it as a congregation, we're not going to be liked. Um, just, just yesterday, I was reading some emails flying back and forth. They're looking for a specific series on a specific topic for the by faith section of the recorder religion page. And uh, the, the email came while I was on vacation, so I haven't had time to work on it and think about it or claim a date yet. But a lot of people jumped on getting in on this topic. Oh boy. Brownie points with the culture, brownie points with our government. Brownie point, more people are going to want to come to my church. They're all responding, I'll take this date, this date, this date, this date. It's about a three-week period. Recorder Religion came back and said we still have dates to fill. More people jumping on board, getting excited. Pastors from a certain brand of church. And finally, our, our brother... One of our brothers, who's a pastor, I, I won't say who, wrote yesterday, I've held myself back from this topic because you don't want me to write on it. But seeing as no one else is going to write from my perspective, I will write the only article that sounds different and I'll take such and such a date. <laughs> I probably need to claim a date too, and then there'll be two of us. It's not going to help his church. It won't help our church. Not from a Cretan perspective. The two things don't go hand in hand. If I want brownie points... I can't stick with the gospel. But the gospel does comply with the one final assumption Paul has in Titus. The gospel and good works go together. The culture thinks it has the definition of good works down. And so often, churches that go along with the culture would tell us that by sticking with the gospel, we don't understand what it means to be good. But Titus assumes the gospel and good works go hand in hand. The final, the fourth assumption is that the proper response to the gospel must be good works. Just yesterday in our book group, Astrid made the comment, the right comment. 
that in Reformed churches in our day, she worded it differently, in our day in conservative and Reformed churches, perhaps especially, we're scared of the, the phrase good works. Because uh, I've been saved by grace alone. I'm not under the law, I'm under grace. So we can't possibly talk about good works, right? I'm not going to read all of the key verses Paul has here, but just hear me summarize some of them. The ones that use the word, the phrase good works or the word good that's associated with it. And you can look them up or follow along. 1 verse 8. To be a qualified elder, one must be a lover of what is good. Don't you love how he phrases that? You don't have to just do good works to be an elder. You have to love it. One sixteen, false professors of the faith are disqualified from every good work. You claim the, the name of Christ, but you don't love the gospel? You don't have good works. Whatever priority you might think you're putting on them. 2 verse 3, older women are to teach the younger women good things. Good things. 2 verse 7, Titus to the young men in the church is to be the pattern of good works in life, in action. 3 verse 1, every believer is to be ready for every good work. Not just make sure you hit your quota occasionally. Or, or do enough good works so that God loves you. We know that that's not how it works in the first place, right? The gospel and good works go hand in hand when the gospel comes first. You are dead in trespasses and sins. You're made alive. Not of works which we have done, but by his mercy he saved us. So you don't need to keep track of your good works. But you do need to be ready to grab hold of every opportunity that comes your way. We fall short. 3 verse 8. We must be careful to maintain good works. See, Paul knew he would fall short. He knew the temptation. So we have to be careful, every believer, to maintain. We as a congregation must be careful to maintain good works and to assist the elders in doing this task of maintaining the good works of a congregation God has given us deacons praise God but we have to be careful to maintain that good work and in case we are so out of shape with good works that we've forgotten 3 verse 14 learn to maintain good works it's an awful short letter and Paul seems quite uh, obsessed with good works but as the result of the gospel 
And and you should notice that. It is the result of the gospel. Chapter 2, verse 14, it's in the context of the grace that brings salvation appearing, teaching us uh, that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking to the blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. Why? That he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Are we zealous? Do you know what zeal is? Zeal's certainly not relaxed let alone apathetic. Zeal is on fire. Or the other way you could translate it, jealous. Like a spouse to defend the purity of their marriage. Are are we, as part of the bride of Christ, jealous for good works? For the glory of the glorious bridegroom. And he does it again in chapter 3. This is a faithful saying. This is verse 8. These things I want you to constantly affirm that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. It's a result of the gospel. And it goes hand in hand with it. These are the assumptions that this book is written under. And if we reject any one of these four assumptions, we're going to reject what he teaches. Some of the things he says, by natural law, I can't tell you are true. Science doesn't tell me they're true. Creation doesn't tell me it's true. Some of the things he says are only true because this is the word of God. But we only accept those things as true if we understand what he presupposes. That there's a right and a wrong way to do the church. That we are not immune to cultural captivity. We need to beware. That the gospel is the only solution to us being just like the Cretans. And that once we have the gospel, we must respond with good works. Even today, may the Holy Spirit do his work in our hearts, revealing to us the areas in our lives, our attitudes, and yes, even as a congregation, as a body, where we are falling short of right order. May he reveal that beginning even today, but as we get into this book, may he every week be doing his good work in us, leading to repentance and life and the glory of his name so that we as a congregation here in modern Crete might know truth 
truly and express rightly the grace, mercy, and peace that only comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior.